This is the sexiest lecture theatre I've ever had the pleasure to stand in. I just want to put that on record, except for the fact that I'm over here in the corner. I'm going to... But if I do this, does that work? You really can't hear... Hey, yeah, you. Yeah. No good. That my big booming voice. <laughs> do, do I need a uh, a mic thing for this? No, it's just a. It's just a. Okay, that's all preliminaries. Um, the other thing I want to say is I don't know where your friends are. Maybe you are friendless people, but uh, hands up, all friendless people. Okay, take a look. They're looking for people to befriend them after this meeting. Um, look, there's two whole banks here, for crying out loud. Um, our challenge is for this semester to fill those banks. We're going to look at one of the most significant documents written in all of human history, I believe, during the course of this semester, 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It has a massive amount to say to us, particularly as people at a, in a context such as Sydney University. Uh, you could do nothing better with your time than to hear 1 Corinthians read and taught. And your friends could have nothing better to do with their time. And so that's our challenge, is to fill these banks. That's not so we can have a good time with more people, or largely, that, that's irrelevant. The point is, people at this university need to hear this book. So, become friends. Um, now, in case you've forgotten why you're at university, let me remind you, uh, it's good to be back, isn't it? And uh, you're having your first week of uh, lectures and collection of bibliographies and reading lists which is essentially what you do in your first week. Um, you have you've come to university, in case you've forgotten, to answer one question. One question alone. Um, not to get an education, though I hope that some of you may do that. Not to get a ticket to a higher than average paying job, although almost all of you will certainly do that. No, you come to university to answer one single question with as much depth and substance and clarity and cohesion as you can possibly muster. And the question is this, who am I? Who am I? Who are you? What are the things and the values and the goals and the pursuits that make you, you? And as I say, we're starting a series of public meetings in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that's going to take our way all the way through second semester here. Uh, it's not just going to be a short series of three. I'm going to start. Uh, Ian Powell's going to pick up in a few weeks' time. Someone else a few weeks after that. We're going to do nine weeks in 1 Corinthians over this semester. And the first three I've called cross-culture because they're all about answering that question, your question. Who am I? What do I stand for? What am I going to invest myself into? Answering that question with reference to the cross of Christ. And my goal is that as we hear Paul's word to the Corinthians, and through those words, God's word to us here today. God is not some dead God in a book. God is alive and powerful and active by his spirit right now. And through this word of the apostle to the Corinthians all those years ago, we hear God's word to us now. It is God's word to us now. And we'll become increasingly and transparently shaped by the cross of Christ. So that at a profound level, for each of us, we can answer that question in the words of the Apostle Paul in another letter that he wrote to uh, the Galatian Christians, May I never boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's pray that that's what would happen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the freedom of access that we have to your word, both in this country, but even more importantly, 
that you are a speaking God, powerful and active and present. We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit with us this afternoon, you would score this word of the cross deeply into our hearts and souls and shape our lives to be like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now one of the interesting things about uh, the Apostle Paul's uh, letters, all 13 of them, is that in just about every one of them he begins by telling the people that he's writing to who he is in relation to God and who they are in relation to God. That's very different from what you see in the great medium of uh, popular culture. Television, car commercials want, to think you, want you to think of your life in relation to the things that you have or don't have. Beer commercials want you to think of your life in relation to the brotherhood or the sisterhood at the pub. Life insurance commercials want you to think of your life in relation to your family, with touching scenes of childhood and graduation and marriage and first home and first car and tombstone and all that kind of thing. And a hundred cosmetics and deodorants and shampoos and foods want you to think of your life in relationship to your body. But the Apostle Paul is relentless, relentless in this thing. He calls us time and time again. Not to deny the existence of good things like cars and friends and families or even our own bodies. Good things that they are. But to give those things their true meaning in relation to God. To God. The Bible defines everything first and foremost in relation to God. Everything has its true significance or its true insignificance in that fundamental relationship. Here the Apostle 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Don't you love the kind of strength and solidity and clarity of Paul's self-understanding? He knows who he is. He's Paul and there was none just like him. He knows why he's here. He's here as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, an emissary, a spokesman with inspired authority. And he knows how he got there. It's by the will of God. He knows where he comes from, from a God whose will governs the world and guides the affairs of earth. He knows where he's going to speak for the King of Kings. And to call all people to submit to Jesus. And he knows that even himself, Paul, with his thorn in the flesh, this thing which nagged and dogged him, which God wouldn't take away from him, with his persecutions and his sleepless nights and his whippings and his beatings, with all of that, yet with his undaunted faith in the Son of God, who loved him and gave himself up for him. Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, he's called... You know what? If you're a Christian, so are you. Listen to it. The precisely the same certainty is there for the Corinthians as well. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The people that he's writing to are Christians. They're defined by being Christians. The first thing that they say about themselves, and the Apostle Paul says about them, is Christians. And there's three things that have happened to make them that. Firstly, they're sanctified in Christ Jesus. We're going to look at what that means. Secondly, they're called to be saints. And thirdly, they called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been around our church circles for a while, uh, you'll have learned probably to think about sanctification as a lifelong process of becoming more and more holy, more and more sanctified, more and more like Christ. But this verse here speaks of sanctification in a different way. It's, it speaks of it in a, as a decisive event that has already happened in the past to the church of God in Corinth, those who are sanctified, past tense. And I want to say that behind and beneath the lifelong process of sanctification, 
there is a decisive break with the old way of unbelief and sin and an alignment with a new way of faith and obedience. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You see it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Listen to this. Do you not know that wrongdoers, literally the unrighteous, will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists some examples of the unrighteous. This is a risky ploy on the part of the apostle to remind uh, his readers of what they were. You'll get the idea in a moment. Adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, robbers. Then he says in verse 11, and this is what some of you used to be. But, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. See, this is sanctification past. There's been something decisive. Something decisive in the experience of the Corinthians. You were a drunkard, but then there was a decisive break. You were a homosexual, and then there was a decisive break. You were greedy for money. Your life was wrapped up in possessions. You thought that your life consisted in the abundance of your possessions. But then there was a decisive break. You were walking away from God, says the apostle, but then you were sanctified. You broke with that old lifestyle and were set apart by God and for God. Your identity becomes wrapped up not in those things, money or sex or power or alcohol, escape, but in God. And that sanctification, that act of sanctification, which leads to a process of sanctification, that decisive act of sanctification is made up of two parts. Something God does and something we do. God calls us to be saints and we call on him for help and salvation. You see there in verse 2. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, that's what God does, together with those, all those in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we do. A decisive call by God and a decisive response that we give in calling to him. God calls us to be saints, or as he puts it in verse 9, called us into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You are called by God. Every bit as much as the Apostle Paul was called by God. And we responded to that call by breaking our old allegiance to other masters, other rulers, other lords, other defining features of our life, and by calling on the Lord Jesus Christ for help and guidance. That's what it is to be a Christian. I want to say, have, have you done that? Have you heard in your ear, in your inner ear, the inner ear of your soul and your spirit, have you heard the call of God on your life? The command of the living and true God who made you and sustained you. Have you heard that call? And if you've heard that call, have you responded to that call? Have you called out to Jesus? Called on his name, his being, his essence, what he's done for you? We'll hear a little bit more about that as we go on. If you haven't, let me say, you need to do that. You need to do that, otherwise you stay opposed to God. I'm going to unpack that a little more in the second half of our time together. You see what the Apostle is saying? He's saying to these, these Corinthian people um, that, that God has called them into fellowship with his Son and, and who because of that call, they've called on Jesus for the satisfaction of their longings and the deliverance from their sins and a tremendous stability comes into your life, doesn't it? A tremendous stability comes into your life when you let the gospel define who you are in relation to God rather than letting the world define who you are in relation to things and groups and your body. To know where you've come from in relation to God and where you're heading 
in relation to God and where you stand now in relation to God. That makes you a free agent, you see. It's a magnificent basis for relating to yourself and to other people and to the world, to yourself. You live in Christ. You live because of God's call, not by your own achievements, and they may be massive, nor by your own failures, and they may too be massive. Not by your own ability, which may be very impressive, but nor by your own lack of ability, which may be very unimpressive. You don't live by those things. You live in Christ. You relate to others because both you and they, as Christians, are saints together, called by God, sharing in the fellowship of Christ. You stand equal with all other Christians as a saint. Take a look around. Look at the, look at the people. I want you to do this. Look at the people around you. Chances are some of them are Christians. Saints. That's what they are. Saints. Massively dignified people. C.S. Lewis uh, used, uh, wrote that, that um, when you looked at another human being, another Christian human being, particularly created and redeemed by God, you were looking at something magnificently holy for whom Christ died. And that gives you a great basis to relate to those other people, doesn't it? Saints, and what's more, you're one with them. You're a saint too. That's pretty terrific. And it gives you a great basis for relating to the world. It can't touch you. The world can't touch you because at the core of your being, you are God's, not its. You will not be the lackey of contemporary advertising. You won't be the slave of ads or fashions or trends. The world attempts to manipulate your decisions by defining you in terms of a body or a car or a bank account that you don't have. That's what it's always about, isn't it? It's what you don't have. It's, you want to look like this girl? Drink Coke. Now, how that works, I've never quite figured out, given that Coke is about 75% sugar. But uh, apparently, you drink Coke and you'll frolic on the beach with these hunks, just like her. You sort of saying, saying, what you don't have, you can have with this product. But you won't crumple with insecurity and dissatisfaction or covetousness if you understand yourself to be defined fundamentally and, 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 and decisively by your relation to God. You'll be an independent, free agent, knowing who you really are and what your life really means in relation to God. It's fantastic. I don't, to be honest, I can't see why anyone wouldn't take that. I do not understand why anyone would not be a Christian. That's how it ought to be. But the Corinthians had gone badly wrong. You see there in verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul. Or I belong to Apollos. Or I belong to Kephas. That's another name for Peter. Or I belong to Christ. Now Corinth, uh, I haven't said much about Corinth. Let me tell you a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was a fast, high-powered, happening kind of place. It was a mix of New York, Los Angeles and Las Vegas. Uh, there was a phrase in the ancient world to chuck a Corinthian, to do a Corinthian. And it meant to have random and frequent sex. Okay, so that's the kind of reputation of the city. Not unlike Sydney, you might think. To chuck a Corinthian. And the Christians wanted to cut it in cosmopolitan Corinth. They wanted to cut it. In fact, they caved in to the city around them, the culture and the prevailing values of the city. And Paul says to them, he'd like to speak to them as Christians. He really would like to speak to them as Christians. In chapter 3, verse 1. But he can't speak to them as spiritual people, but only as worldly, since they are behaving like the world. 
And here's where you see. See, far from relating to each other as co-saints, those who together call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who together have been called into the fellowship of the Son, far from relating to each other as co-saints, what's happening in the church of Corinth is that people were beginning to polarise behind their favourite teacher, regarding that teacher as somehow, as if this was possible, more than a saint. They isolated particular qualifications or strengths of their favourite teacher and began to brag about them. They elevated these characteristics to the point where they derived some sense of superiority from claiming this particular teacher as their own. And so Paul has to appeal to them in verse 10 that there be no that they all be in agreement and that there be no divisions or literally schisms, schismata, amongst them. Now this kind of uh, identifying with particular people uh, and the kind of pride that underlies it can cut two ways, I think. On the one hand, there's great danger of taking pride in knowing and being associated with important people. Most of us feel like nobodies in a world where the media are constantly holding up the desirability of being well-known. And so the way that millions of people try to satisfy this desire is to line up behind someone who is a somebody. Um, I once met Gough Whitlock. Now, he was an Australian Prime Minister a few years ago, uh, back in the 70s, a bit of a hero to us uh, uh, Labor voting people. Uh, we were immigrants, my parents, uh, and uh, so I'm a son of an immigrant. And, you know, he was a giant of a man. I was in the green room at the Opera House. I thought I'd just drop that in. I'm uh, about to go and perform uh, on stage. And uh, Goff was there, brought into the uh, green room for special treatment. He's about 18 feet tall, massive man, huge presence, and I shook hands with him. G'day, Goff. Been an admirer for a long time. Can I get an autograph? I lost the autograph. We love associating with great people, don't we? You might read their books, get their magazines, follow them in the, you know, Clio or whatever it is that you read. Teenagers put posters of these people on their walls. You kind of connect with someone who's famous and great and sexy and wonderful. It happens in the church too. People go to churches to be part of some minister's thing. Get on email lists, get familiar with their teaching, their way of doing things, and begin to idealise them or even absolutise them. And the effect is a kind of vicarious ego trip. And that anyone who's not on this bandwagon gets kind of looked down on. And the result is the emergence of schisms and splits. That, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, there's another kind of reaction which has the same root in pride. It's, that it's of those who are defensive and reactionary about any kind of influence coming from a Christian leader. So one, you know, one person has learned something helpful from a book or a sermon or a lecture or whatever, and you try and tell this, this kind of person about it, they'll immediately sort of accuse you of hero worship or herd mentality, and they need to make it very clear that they're way above kind of believing what anyone else says, way above being led or, or taught. They're much more critical and independent and cautious than you are. And that too is destructive of unity. And so there are two forms of pride, I think, in the church, uh, uh, in Corinth, when it comes to Christian leadership. One that wants to kind of ride the coattail of a leader to vicarious sort of glory, and the other one that's kind of anti-authoritarian, suspicious, sceptical. Both destroy unity. And that's what's happening in Corinth. There's a deep pride or boasting that expresses itself in playing off one teacher against another, getting uh, kind of feeling good from having a special relationship with a teacher that they think is superior, or attacking someone else. And here's the point. God hates pride. God hates pride. 
You know that in order to deeply love, there are things that you must deeply hate. The two go together, actually, love and hate. Hate is not the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. Hate and love go together. To love children deeply, you must hate any mistreatment or neglect that destroys them. To love clear-headed kindness and respect, you have to hate alcoholism and substance abuse. If you love freedom, then you'll hate slavery and totalitarianism, won't you? And I'm saying God hates pride. He hates pride. Because that's a reflex of his love. In case you hadn't kind of cottoned on to how much God hates pride, let me just kind of barrage you with a sort of a, a rapid flow of Bible verses. Ready? Get this. Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. And the first one mentioned is haughty eyes. Psalm 101 verse 5, David speaks for God and says, The man of haughty looks and arrogant heart I will not endure. Proverbs 16 5, Everyone who is arrogant is an abomination to the Lord. Isaiah 2 verse 11, The haughty eyes of people shall be brought low, and the pride of everyone shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Jeremiah 50 verse 31, Behold, I am against you, O proud one, says the Lord God of hosts, for your day has come, the time when I will punish you. I've got a Bible program on my computer. I punch in the word pride, and bingo, out come hundreds of verses. The Lord hates human pride. Even among Christians. Perhaps especially among Christians. And pride is the root cause of the problems in Corinth. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29. So that no one might boast in the presence of God. 31. In order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. 3 verse 21, so let no one boast about human leaders. 4 verse 6, so that no one of you be puffed up in favour of one against another. Verse 7, if you received, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? 4 18, but some of you thinking that I'm coming to you have become arrogant. 5 verse 2, and you are arrogant. Do you know what I mean? You get the idea of what the problem of Corinth is. It's pride. Boasting in self and not the Lord. Taking credit ourselves for what God alone can do. Relying on self and not God. Feeling sufficiency in your own strength and not in God's. And God hates pride. Do get that, won't you? You don't want to be on the receiving end of God's hate. God hates pride. Because he loves the heart that boasts in the Lord. He loves the heart that gives him the credit for what only he can do. He loves the heart that relies on his power. He loves the heart that wants to, uh, him to get the glory in all things and the power of Christ to shine in our weakness. The root problem in Corinth is pride which created allegiances to people that no one should give. Pride which undersold oneself as a saint and which oversold others as though they were somehow more than saints. And so Paul speaks to the Corinthians about the word of the cross, which above all things destroys human pride and restores the boast of people to where it belongs, which is in the law. Read with me if you have a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message about the cross, or the word of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now what uh, might strike you on first reading of uh, these words is that this is a pretty good line to try on your lecturers next time you hand in a fairly substandard piece of work. Okay, you can kind of imagine it. Summon up the courage. I'm a Christian. I heard this in a talk recently. I'm defined by my relation to God, you say. And God has destroyed the wisdom of the wise. But I didn't bother much with this assignment. Because that's you. Well, no. God is not just anti-intellectual. What's going on? You can see if you're reading the Bible, it's kind of got an indented there. Uh, and that indicates that it's a quotation from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 13 to 16. Let me read them to you. The Lord said, Because these people draw near with their mouths and honour me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their worship of me is a human commandment learned by rote, so I will again do amazing things with this people, shocking and amazing. The wisdom of their wise shall perish, and the discernment of the discerning shall be hidden. Ha! You've got to worry when God says, Ha! to you. You know what I mean? Ha! You who hide a plan too deep for the Lord. I get the feeling God's spitting at this point. <laughs> whose deeds are in the dark and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall a potter be regarded as the clay? Shall the thing made save its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed save the one who formed it? He has no understanding. You see, you see what's happening? This is people. In, in this case, God's own people. Right? This is not just the bad guys out there. This is God's own people. Israel, using their intelligence, using their wisdom, their minds, to shut God out. In arrogance, self-assertion and independence, they hide their plans from God. They, they say, who sees us? Who will know? So Paul is talking about the world or even God's own people as it stands against God, as it's reluctant to come under God's rule, to acknowledge his authority and love and mercy, as it thumbs the nose of God and says, I'm not interested. That's our world, isn't it? That's our university, for crying out loud. That's our city. And what God says is the wisdom of those wise people, I will destroy. The discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. You want to take pride? You want to boast in your wisdom, your power, your authority? Well, God's going to completely rip that to shreds. Now, of course, that's a bigger poke in the eye, isn't it, for the Corinthians? That's a big poke in the eye of the Corinthians and people like the Corinthians who want to emulate the world, to take on board its values, to boast in human leaders. Because God has destroyed all that. How's he done it? Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. This is a hard verse. You need to listen carefully to this one. It's all here. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. It's all in the words, God decided. You, another way you put that is, God was pleased to make it this way. God decided, God was pleased to save. You know how people are saved? Through the foolishness of our proclamation rather than through wisdom. No human construction no intellectual ability, no uh, academic achievement will save you, will bring you life. 
Only through the foolishness of what is preached. And what's preached? Well, verse 18, it's the message, the word of the cross. What Paul is saying is that in, the, in this message about a political assassination of a wandering Jew, in that fact, in that reality, that is the way that people become right with God. And it's the only way. Now, now, that's an incredible thing to say. You need to kind of get how incredible that thing is. Reflect for a moment on the nature of this cross. Don't sanitise it. Don't turn it into just an idea. Don't take the sting out of it. Having been indicted on false charges, Jesus was tried before a prejudiced jury, convicted by a cowardly judge, with all the terror of an unchallengeable judicial process gone wrong. He was beaten to a pulp even before his crucifixion, so much so that he was unable to carry his own implement of crucifixion. He was humiliated and spat on and further tortured with a crown of thorns stuck into his head and dispatched as a common criminal. And finally he's crucified, crucified, which is death by slow asphyxiation, as your shattered wrists and shins are no longer capable of supporting the weight of your body, and you collapse on your diaphragm and suffocate yourself. A process, a humiliating process, which can linger for hours or even days. Do you get the sense of the pathetic weakness of the cross? Pathetic weakness. And Paul is saying that this death on the cross, and no other place, this death on the cross, is the precise moment when God was most powerful. Most powerful. Powerful, when the precise moment when God saved the world, the precise moment when God demonstrated his justice and carved out your forgiveness and mine. It's in this cross death that we see God at his most godlike. At his most godlike. And that utterly destroys the wisdom of the wise. It's a tiny bit like this, okay? It's a tiny bit like this. I used to play tennis a lot. I wasn't great, but I wasn't bad. I'd win some and I'd lose some. Occasionally you come up against a genuinely good player and uh, you're there for the challenge and you don't mind losing. But I remember once that I lost to this guy after being 5-1 up. I don't know if you know anything about tennis, but the idea is to get to six games. I was 5-1 up, so I was nearly there. I was one point, I had about eight match points. I was one point away from winning uh, in the final set. And this guy was, com was useless, right? He was a complete plotter. And I crashed and burned from 5-1 up. Now, you don't mind losing to a good guy, but you really hate losing to a plotter. You know what I mean? It's just, it rankles and you go home and you kick the cat and, and <laughs> it's, it's just, it, you hate it. It's humiliating to lose to a player who is genuinely worse than you, weaker than you, more pathetic than you. That's the message of the gospel. It's the message about Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified on a cross. And that cross is what God has chosen to be the means of salvation for the whole world. That's all God has got for the world. Jews might demand signs, says Paul. Some corroboration from God. Greeks might want wisdom, something that makes sense, that cuts it intellectually. Something that you know, gets taught happily in universities and you can write PhDs on. Signs that display a power. Wisdom that display of intelligence. Either your own or someone else's that you can kind of attach to and say, I follow. Either way, the Apostle is saying, that's the way of the world. You want to know where God does his thing? God does his thing not in power, not in wisdom. God does his thing on the cross. And the cross utterly humiliates, utterly destroys and overthrows all that power 
all that wisdom, all that arrogant self-assertion against God. In his great wisdom, he's decided by, that by this foolish message, by this story of weakness and humiliation, he will save people. So he says to the Corinthians, you Corinthians, you want to be like the world? You want to boast in power? You want to boast in wisdom? You want to follow gurus? You've lost the plot. You've lost the plot. Because God has humiliated the world. There's more though. He gives another example of this topsy-turvy method of God. Uh, Now he refers to the Corinthians himself. And this is a dangerous ploy. Get this. Verse 26. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. This is a dangerous uh, move for a preacher to remind an audience of what a bunch of losers they are. Here he goes. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. And you might want to look around and check out others at this point. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He says, you Corinthian, you're, you're a pretty motley crew. You're kind of mainly a bunch of losers that God has chosen. Uh, there's a, a wonderful English noble woman, Elizabeth Fry was her name, uh, in the 19th century. Magnificent Christian servant. Uh, very substantial uh, um, contribution to prison reform in England. Uh, he used to say, thank God for the M in many. Not many. Not not any. But not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Why, now why would God choose a bunch of losers? Just look straight ahead. Why would God choose a bunch of losers? When you're playing tip footy and the captains pick the teams, who gets chosen first? It's the best players, not the worst. And that modesty prevents me at this point in time from another mention of how that might pan out in the light of recent Le Caviar Cup exploits. What has God done? He has picked a bunch of completely uninspiring losers. Why? But God, verse 27, chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not, to reduce to nothing the things that are. It's the same strategy as the strategy of the cross, isn't it? God humiliates the wise and the powerful and the somebodies by saving the nobodies. There's a reason. Not just negatively, but positively. Verse 29. So that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life. There's your identity again. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, wise and intelligent people and people of high birth very easily come to be full of themselves, don't they? Full of their achievements and their ability and their capacity. Rupert and Lachlan and Kerry and James, they get what they want any time they want, don't they? They just click. They just click and they get what they want. And it's very easy for them to fool themselves into thinking that they don't need God. Very easy indeed. God chooses people who aren't rich and talented and high-powered, who will boast in the Lord and not in themselves. You see at the bottom, God will be God. He will not tolerate rivals to his glory. He's a jealous God. So that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Let me quickly draw some threads together. 
If you're a Christian here today, if you're in Christ, if you've been called by God into the fellowship of His Son and the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the crucified Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to know that you never graduate from the cross. You never graduate from the cross. You just get more like it. Life in the shadow of the cross is about whittling ourselves from proud trees, because that's how we start. That's what we learn. Proud trees. Full of our own goodness and adequacy and whittling that away until we're people who are thoroughly shaped by the cross. Humble before God, standing before God, not on the basis of our own strength and achievement and goodness. Wisdom or intelligence or insight. And humble not just negatively, but humble positively. Boasting, pumping your fist. That's what boasting means. It means pumping your fist. Fist pumping about God, exalting Him, looking to God as your strength and your wisdom. What the world needs most, what a university of all places, this place full of pride and arrogance and wisdom before God, isn't it? What this world and what our university needs most is the power of Christ's cross, seen in the cross-shaped lives of Christians, whose hearts are as full of love and sacrifice as his was, so confident in who they are in God and in Christ, so confident that they can afford to be humble. What the university does not need is Christians who leave the cross behind, who forget that God has humiliated the world, who try to uh, imitate it all over again, who try to meet it on its own terms. That's what's so pathetically sad about enemies of the cross, like John Spong. You may have heard recently in Australia to sell more books. His project of discarding historic Christian faith in order to make it more comprehensible for modern person. That's what it's to make that making it more comprehensible, more fitting, more easily accommodated by the wisdom of the world. Betrays the fact that he's an enemy of the cross. The cross humiliates the modern person. Just like it humiliated the Greek who demanded wisdom and the Jew who demanded a sign. And for Christians to ape the world like that, to try and kind of be acceptable and comprehensible, is just pathetic. Don't you ever do that, will you? Don't ever long so much for respectability on the world's terms that you end up losing your grip on salvation on God's terms. But it's also what can be said about us evangelical Christians when we're not in agreement and there are divisions amongst us and we're not united in the same mind and the same purpose. When we boast in our leaders and line up behind them and against others. We, I don't know why this is, I don't know why it is, but we evangelical, we love our gurus. We do love our gurus. We love our select set of speakers that we hear time and again and fly them across from the United States or South Africa or England. We get them to tell us how bad things are over there and how wonderful we are over here. And pretty soon we know worse, no better than the Corinthians. I heard recently a story, and I'll finish with this, of a guy who came to the conclusion that women were not made in the image of God. I was shocked to hear that, and so were his friends and people around him, uh, and sought to engage him with the biblical text. He was immovable on that. Wouldn't change his mind. Reading the text, it's pretty straightforward, but he wouldn't change his mind. At least that was until he heard that Philip Jensen held that both men and women were made in the image of God. He had his guru, and then he changed his mind. Now don't miss him. That's not a comment about Philip Jensen. Philip Jensen's a great guy. He's a saint, in fact. Just like you. Nothing more than a saint, and he'd be the first to say it. But we mustn't be people who boast in our gurus who line up behind them and create disunity and factions and schisms amongst ourselves. We boast all right. We're supposed to be fist pumpers, but we boast not in our leaders. 
We boast not in our gurus, we boast not in our heritage, we boast in the Lord. Thanks Andrew, we look forward to the next couple of weeks. Four things, very quickly. The first is, as Andrew said, bring your friends, come again next week, uh, let's fill this auditorium. Second thing is, if you were at an annual conference and uh, your bag ended up lighter than it was when you first came, uh, there's lost property and quite a lot of it at afternoon tea, so you might like to have a look through that. Uh, the third thing is, if you filled out a yes form or a training form, please drop them in one of the boxes on your way out. And the fourth is, please do join us for afternoon tea. If you head out up the back, turn right, and then right again, uh, please join us for uh, coffee and tea and some biscuits and chatting. <laughs>